0: We're going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1, in just a moment. And as we saw last week, let me remind us of what we call the 15 prophetic books. Most of them begin by explicitly indicating that their message is the word of the Lord. Nahum, as we learn, though, is a little different. He makes the same claim as the other prophets, but he does it indirectly by referring to this oracle, this burden that was given to him, a burden that he gives to the people by speaking about what he saw that would happen at a future date. And Nahum is unique from many of the other prophetic books because his vision is described and referred to as a book. It's not just some spontaneous revelation that he has, but he's written an objective, rational piece of literature with a unified theme for us to be able to study. Judgment is coming. Because of your sin... And there is nothing that you can do about it. And that is actually meant to be a comfort to God's people. As He announces to them the destruction of their most dread enemies, Nineveh, the people of Assyria. The city that we've learned about before last week, the city that we studied about last semester. Nahum helps us see that God had mercifully sent Jonah to warn the Assyrians of punishment. So Nineveh is without excuse when Nahum prophesies. They're not able to say, God is patient and good with Israel and Judah, but not to us. That's why Nahum is not saying, this will happen if you do not repent. That was Jonah's mission. Nahum is saying something far worse. A little over a century after when Jonah prophesied, When the fruits of a previous repentance are long gone and no longer observable. Nahum is saying, this will happen. And there is nothing that you can do about it. When he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he speaks to us with the same authority as Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us again today. Again, we're going to read the whole book because we're only studying it for three weeks and it's a shorter book. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him, but with an overwhelming flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. For the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image... I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day, he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run dry. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and the lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with thorn, a torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look out at your nakedness. And kingdoms at your shame. And I will throw filth at you. And treat you with contempt. And make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, her water, a wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber, your people are scattered on the mountains, with none to gather them. There is no easing in your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as we turn your, our attention to your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. But, Father, we confess that these words are mysterious. They are dark. They are hard to read. Hard to read and hard to hear. And we pray, Father, that you would help us as we turn our attention to them to understand them, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We pray that we would learn how to understand them in light of what Jesus Christ has done for all who have trusted in him. We pray, Father, that they would not only make us sad, but that they would give us hope that the day is coming perhaps sooner than we think when you will judge your enemies, who are our enemies. Father, we pray that as we read these words, that we would gain insight, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and we might fall greater in love with the God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. What can man do against such reckless hate? Famous words many people in this room know, spoken by and King and the Lord of the Rings, as he looks out at Helm's Deep on wave after wave after wave of orc coming to destroy the people of Middle-earth. Looking out in despair, seeing nothing but countless enemies, he says, What can man do against such reckless hate? And in that hour of despair, willing to give up everything, fortunately he is... There, side by side with Aragorn, who knows something that he doesn't. Who knows that he did not have to win the battle. He just had to wait for deliverance to come. And with courage greater than he ever knew that he had, he charges out only to receive a deliverance that he had to wait on. Similarly, we find the people of Israel looking out on a great nation, growing mightier by the day thinking, what can we do against such reckless hate? People who take and pillage, who rape and destroy, who dash and kill. What can we do? And in God's kindness, Nahum comes and tells them that there is nothing to do against such reckless hate. They simply need to wait for the deliverance that will come. The good news of the salvation of God's people is seen in the destruction of their enemies. A salvation that they simply have to wait upon. Three points will frame our time together this morning as we focus our attention primarily on chapter 2. Notice first, the Lord speaks for Judah. Look again in chapter 1, verse 15 with me. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man of the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Judah's attention now is directed to the news, chapter 1, verse 15, of peace. Peace that is being proclaimed by a herald welcoming news. Verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. The messenger comes and they bring words of salvation. Salvation that has appeared and they're directed outwards. Look, do you see Him? Just there in the distance on the ridge of the mountains. A runner has finally come. Coming, bringing glad tidings, good news. Nineveh the great has fallen. Our oppressor Has been defeated. We are finally free. A proclamation that resembles the words of another prophet. The prophet Isaiah. Who says in chapter 52 verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion. Your God reigns. This verse in Isaiah comes in the context of God's people being awakened to holiness. They're being awakened to holiness as the Lord promises them freedom. Freedom from the bondage that they have experienced at the hands of those who have been oppressing them, the Assyrians. Both Isaiah and Nahum tell us the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, has stood beside His helpless And unworthy people, offering them a sure and solid foundation as they look out into the future, as he promises them that a day is coming when there will be no mistaking what their eyes see. Are we seeing what is really taking place? When their ears finally hear the glad tidings of peace, when their ears finally hear the good news of salvation. Salvation when their enemies, the Assyrians, are defeated. And all they have to do is receive it and believe what they have heard. Verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. It's actually the same proclamation the Apostle Paul would make later. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, after Paul has been describing how God justifies the ungodly, the ungodly Jew and the ungodly Greek, after nine chapters of explaining that all were ungodly, all were undeserving, all were worthless, no one deserved this salvation, the Apostle Paul begins to exult in the salvation that he's been describing to them, and he says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, how is it that they have not obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard? heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The apostle Paul tells us, if those who proclaim the good news of release from Assyria celebrated, how much more welcome, the apostle suggests, the heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified as a substitute for sinners from Isaiah to Nahum, from Nahum to Romans From prophets to apostles, God's people are never charged with the responsibility of accomplishing their salvation. Or maintaining their salvation. Of delivering themselves or keeping themselves delivered. They are simply informed that they must believe what has been reported to them. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. The one who publishes peace. Faith comes from hearing. From hearing what? That God will accomplish your deliverance. Friend, I wonder if you are here and you are trying really hard to make yourself good. Or you are here and you are trying really hard to keep yourself good. From Old Testament and the New Testament. From people then to people now. God's people have always been called to simply receive. To believe. To believe that God will accomplish their deliverance. That righteousness before God is not based on the law. That righteousness is based on faith. And what must they have faith in? In Nahum, under the old covenant, that God will act on their behalf to deliver them, even though it is far off. In Romans, under the new covenant, that God has acted decisively on their behalf to deliver them in Jesus Christ. Friends, the good news of salvation is that His promises to act on behalf of His people have all finally come true in the person of Jesus Christ. He has acted definitively. He has acted finally. He has acted climactically in Jesus Christ for you. That you might be delivered and have peace with God. That you might have peace with God. Friends, do you believe that? You must believe that. But the question is, how do you know if you are believing that or if you believe that rightly? You must believe that you need to be delivered And that there is actually only one God who can deliver you. The triune God of the Bible who has revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. You must believe that the triune God has delivered you by sending the Son, Jesus Christ. To die as a substitute for your sin. To die the death that you deserve to die. The terrible, awful death on the cross that you should have died. For sins that you have committed. For sins that you actually are still committing. For sins that you won't stop committing because you love your sin. Sins that have severed your relationship with God. Friends, sins that will send you to hell. Sins that must be dealt with by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinners. You see, the Bible never tells us that we need to believe that Jesus is God simply. The Bible never tells us that we just need to affirm that He's the Christ. The Bible tells us that we need to believe that Jesus, God, the Christ, died for us in our place. You must believe that by faith. You must have complete trust in the sin-bearing substitute of salvation. So let me ask you again. Do you believe that? That He died for your sin, not someone else's sin, ...but your sin? And have you trusted in that completely? Friends, you can believe that today. The Bible is very simple about what you must do. You must repent. You must turn away. You must believe with all of your heart... ...with all of your soul... ...with all of your mind in Christ. And you must simply receive deliverance... ...that God has accomplished... ...and in so doing be born again. Friend, if you would like to talk more about that... ...we would love to talk more with you... ...from the Bible... Find me. I'll be standing at that tunnel following the service. There are other pastors. Pastor Terry is here. He would love to speak with you. Pastor Will is on the front row here. They would love to open the Bible with you and tell you more about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But if you don't believe that, let me ask you, why do you not believe that? Is it because all of those promises seem like they'll never be fulfilled? I can assure you that the Jews thought the exact same thing. When Nahum was prophesying. That all of God's promises. Seemed like they would never be fulfilled. That they were all very far off. And I can assure you. That the threats. Of those same promises. Of God's judgment. Seemed very far off to the Assyrians. That they would never be fulfilled. That God would actually never come. And stop them. That there would never be a day. When they did not dominate the ancient world. But sooner perhaps. Than both of them thought. God's promises of salvation and judgment were being fulfilled when Assyria was overthrown completely. Nahum looks to the redemptive act of the coming of the victorious Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible, as he reminds us of the sovereignty of God over all nations, over all earthly powers. And he says, no longer will Judah's persecutors torment them. There will be peace. There will be health. There will be flourishing. There will be well-being. There will be life. The herald says, verse 15, keep your feast, so, Judah... Fulfill all of your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. Do not lose heart. Persist. He will be utterly cut off. Judah was to hear of God's faithful judgment coming upon Assyria. How the worthless one would be completely overthrown. And then take courage, take heart, and persist in obedience. It doesn't look like your obedience is doing very much. But I can assure you that it is doing more than you know. And a day is coming when all of that obedience will be seen to have been right keep your feasts keep your vows persist in trusting in the lord friends i can assure you that that is probably the same for true of many of you in this room today it doesn't look like it's amounting to very much does it all of the obedience and heartache all of the sacrifice and loss all of the early mornings and the late nights and nothing. All of the prayers seem to have gone unanswered. Keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows. A day is coming when all who have trusted in those promises will have been proven to be right. Judah was to hear of God's faithful judgment and take courage. But it is, is it, after all, appropriate for them to not only have courage but to celebrate the devastation of their enemies. Can it be that the crushing defeat of Nineveh, with all of its greatness, would actually be the occasion for rejoicing and celebration and feasting for God's people, especially when those people like us have souls that will never die? You see, we look out at the Ninevites... And the reason we get confused is we think, these people are otherwise innocent. And God is somehow cruel and just comes through town and destroys everybody and says, you all get to live. But when we consider what history has revealed about the Assyrians and Asher and Asherpal and his kingdom, we realize that there were no innocent people in Assyria. Quote, this is of the king. I built a pillar over against his city gate. And I flayed all of the chief men who had revolted against me. And I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar, and some upon the pillar on stakes I impaled. And others I fixed two stakes round about the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I flayed. And I spread their skins upon the walls, and I cut off the limbs of the high officers, of the high royal officials who had rebelled against me. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I captured alive. For some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses and their ears, and the eyes of many men I put out. I made one heap of the living and another heaps of the heads. I bound their heads to vines about the city. Their young men and maidens I burned alive. God has shown amazing grace by commissioning Jonah to preach the gospel to a people like that in a city filled with wickedness and people who did wicked things. But it is no surprise that God's people then were called to celebrate with feasting and joy when the defeat and overthrow of enemies like that came about. And the greatest reason for that celebration was not simply that they had finally lost the battle. is that they would never again pass through them. Their deliverance would be permanent. Look at verse 15. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. God will utterly cut off their oppressor. When chapter 2, verse 1, the scatterer, that is the Babylonian king, would come with some of the Medes against Nineveh with a coalition, as God would demonstrate His sovereignty over all nations, by raising up another evil empire to destroy this evil empire, teaching us that if God could take down Nineveh, God can take down any nation. And no nation standing in opposition to this God should expect to last forever. Friends, this is not a call to a Christian nation. Some people say that. But the Bible never has called us to a Christian nation. There is no such thing. It is a call to see God's sovereignty on full display in Nahum. As God mockingly calls out to the Assyrians to prepare herself for her battle, though no amount of preparation will actually prepare her enough to be able to withstand the onslaught of what is coming. She will not be able to stand against him. And it helps us see that we are not to side with people who have sided against God. Whether it be the good old U.S. of A, or the ancient Assyrians, or the Chinese or the Russians, or anybody else you don't like today. When, verse 2, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel... For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Deliverance from Assyria, the mightiest empire on the planet for about 2,000 years at this point, has demonstrated that God and God alone accomplishes deliverance for them and for you and for me. As the good news of salvation of God's people is seen in the destruction of their enemies. It's no longer just heard. But it's seen. Notice second, the Lord, the God who is avenging. First, the Lord speaks for Judah. Notice second, the Lord, the God who is avenging. Look with me in verse 3 of chapter 2. The shield of his mighty men is red, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet, the chariots come with flashing metal on the day that he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dark like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where her cubs were with none to disturb? The prophet plunges us into the midst of the struggle between Nineveh and its prophesied assailants. And careful readers begin to feel the chill at the shock of the first warning alert. We're jarred at the pulsating rumbling of the approaching war as chariots begin to storm into the streets. We feel the sense of panic that they would feel in flight from the warriors who have not only... Come to their city, but have broken down their walls, come through the last defenses, and are now running through the cities, taking care of business. As we watch the downcast, with downcast eyes, the gleeful and sweaty victors mow people down one after another after another with no discrimination. The divine judgment in Nahum is palpable. It's a flesh and blood reality. God is going to send somebody against them. It is terrible to behold. It's no wonder that many of us don't even really want to read this book. When God's enforcement of vengeance comes about, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible is a jealous God. He is a God who is jealous. He is zealous that His honor be maintained by friend and foe. By followers and those who stand against him. He is jealous and avenging. And he will by no means clear the guilty. He will pour out his judgment on those who have stood against him. As wave after wave after wave of judgment falls upon Nineveh for her sins. Sins that she has committed. Sins that she has willingly committed. Sins that she continues to commit. And total domination of the terrain actually captures our imagination as her assaulters finally come against her. Verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day, he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The reddened shield serve as a threat of the sentence that is now going to be executed on Nineveh's inhabitants. As they lay claim to the territory immediately outside the city walls you can just imagine the terror as the army approaches verse 4 the chariots race madly through the streets they rush to and fro through the squares they gleam like torches they dart like lightning there's no escape from the god who is avenging as the battle moves from outside to inside the city and the city falls verse 5 He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The panicked Ninevites finally rally. They remember, we actually have an army. But they're hardly adequate to the challenge. They stumble as they go to their place of defenses, only to learn that it's too late. It's too late to repel anyone, as the enemy actually uses the very type of siege equipment that they would have used to conquer kingdoms against them. Their own specialty is used against them. What irony. And there is nothing that they can do to protect themselves against the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible, when He raises His fist against them. No one shall escape, because even nature conspires against them when God is against them. Look at verse 6. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Deodorus, an ancient Greek historian, tells us that the fall of Nineveh was accelerated by a series of heavy rains that swelled the Euphrates and flooded parts of the city, actually bringing down a two-mile portion of the wall. The very thing that they thought was their defense. We're beside a body of water. No one can cross the body of water. We have the Atlantic Ocean between us and other people. No one will ever be able to get over here. It was the very thing that God used against them. As the water swelled, brought all of their defenses down, and people poured into the city to kill indiscriminately so that they could strip and carry into exile all of the people like a helpless girl. And now nothing is left. Of the hustle and the bustle of the once great city. The great metropolitan city that everyone would come to. To see arts and riches and rulers and kings and theater. So that they could see a dominant town on a dominant shore ruling in the ancient world. When the wealthiest of all the cities on earth is quickly left empty. After 2,000 years of domination and plundering other people. And their riches just go away and vanish in the night. Verse 8. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. She had been economically fierce. She had taken everything from everybody and she had amassed it all for herself. And you can imagine the arrogance with all of my wealth and all of my army and this water beside me. We're going to be just fine. We'll never run out of money. And we have a great army and this water will protect us. And now it's all gone. The water works against them. The army's dead. The money's gone. And you can imagine the people looking out What happened? Desolation, ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in all loins, all faces grow pale. Her boundless riches are now gone after plundering others. They vanish. But the prophet tells us that those who have made themselves wealthy by terrifying others and pillaging their land now find themselves impoverished and in terror. Friends, the treasures of the world may change hands from conqueror to conqueror. But Nahum teaches us that God controls it all. Nobody in Assyria thought that Babylon was coming. And nobody in Babylon thought that Rome was coming. And nobody in Rome thought that it would be gone in a day. And I would assume that many of us never think that the day is coming when anyone will ever conquer the nation that we live in. God rules God reigns, it's God's wealth, it's God's planet, and no one can stop God when God acts. The picture pulsates with the reality of the situation as terror reigns in on every side for all those who for generations thought that we're going to be just fine. We're the greatest nation on the earth. We strike fear in everyone's hearts. And now find firsthand the horrors of divine judgment as the good news of the salvation of God's people is seen in the destruction of her enemies. The Lord speaks for Judah, comforting them with Nahum the prophet, whose name means comfort. The Lord, the God who is avenging, releases his anger on his enemies, and they are enemies. Notice third, the Lord who speaks against Nineveh. Look with me again in verse 11. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. And I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. God, the mocker, now mocks. He mocks the hollow strength of the city as he speaks not only for Judah, but against Nineveh. Verse 11. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Nineveh had once been the unchallengeable, unassailable sanctuary of conquering kings. Kings who actually had portrayed themselves as lions. As lions with the behavior of lions. Fierce, powerful, mighty, unafraid. Unafraid. They had the architecture everywhere beside their throne. They kept lions in their palaces in cages to remind people. That's what we're like. Where now is the one great place? The sanctuary of lion kings. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me now to Isaiah 36. And as you turn there, pay attention to the arrogance of this empire. Isaiah 36, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. But what would be really helpful is if you're taking notes, just write down 36 and 37 and go back this afternoon and read 36 and 37, and then read chapter 52, and then read Nahum, and then go to Romans. And just read the Bible. (laughs) Isaiah 36. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshaka from Lachish to King Hezekiah, Jerusalem, with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to him them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours?' Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans upon it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before me at this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, now just imagine there, everybody says, the Lord told me to do it. He's saying the same. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabsheka, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabsheka said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And the Rabshekah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine. And each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come to take you away to the land like your own land. A land of grain and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Shepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabsheka. Now, we've all seen scenes like this, we've lived them in our lives. A bully comes to people to mock, to try to convince everyone that justice is on their side. We're right. We're going to take you to a better land. We're going to unpopulate your land. We're going to put our people back in your land so that that land will never be a threat to us again. We're going to depopulate it and repopulate other lands, spread everybody out. But you're going to love it. And justice is on our side. All of these other gods, they've shown themselves to be false. None of them stood against us. But our king, the great king, the high king, the king of Assyria, no one can stop him, And you can't stop him either. A bully mocks to try to convince people that justice is on their side. But in Nahum, God mocks because justice is on his side. He's not trying to convince anybody because God is justice. And there are no innocent people in Assyria. And now a mocker, Assyria, is silenced by the mocker, the greatest of all mockers, God The God who is avenging. And God, the mocker, mocks them as the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible, speaks against them. Verse 13 of chapter 2. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. Your kings, your people, and all of their lineage, and all of their so called lions, and all of the lionesses that they've provided for, and all of the little lion cubs that they have lying around, I will devour all of them. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. The prophet tells us that the only threat to a lion is a larger lion. And now the Lion of the tribe of Judah has come forth on behalf of his people to bring down a tyrant to the lowest place on the earth. Friends, it is true, if God is for you, who can be against you? But if God is against you, it does not matter who is for you. And that is an important lesson for us to learn. As important for us as it was for the people of Judah who received this prophecy that was delivered to them, not Nineveh. You see, if we're not paying attention, we might think Nahum sent so that he might, like Jonah, go into the streets of the Assyrians and say, hey, judgment day is coming. Get ready. But that's not who he's bringing this prophecy to, is it? He's bringing it to the people of Judah. And they would need to receive this prophecy to not only know that they need to receive deliverance, but to be warned. This is good news. The good news of the salvation of God's people is seen in the destruction of their enemies. A destruction that they themselves should also fear. Because they have learned, chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And if they're honest, they would know that they too are guilty. And if you're honest, you know that you too are also guilty. See, the problem of reading Nahum is that we finally begin to learn something about the Assyrians, and we begin to realize that they are the obviously evil people. But we view them like all of the people that we see in movies. A lot like the empire or other people dressed in black, obviously bad, the wicked people, who we're kind of glad that they get blown up in the end. But as we read through the story, we begin to realize that they're not the only evil people that Nahum is speaking to. And there are no innocent people here this morning. The same sentence has been placed on us by the Bible. The same apostle who told us about the good news tells us about the bad news in Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. How has Assyria been described? Worthless no one does good not even one not upstairs not downstairs not from the most innocent down there to the most good up here their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips the mouth their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known There is no fear of God before their eyes. From Old Testament and New Testament, there's a sin problem and a guilt problem because of that sin. And it has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with and it can only be dealt with by the God who is the avenging God, who speaks for Judah and against Assyria, who speaks for His people in Christ and against all who have not trusted in His Christ. And this God has issued us a wonderful and great proclamation. If you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins. Every single one of them. The one that you think that He won't forgive you of. The one that you don't want anyone to know anything about. He will forgive you of all of them. The ones that you have committed. The ones that you are committing. The ones that you committed on the way to church today. The ones you will commit on the way home. The ones you will commit this week. And the ones that you will commit until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And He has given us a merciful proclamation that if we trust in that forgiveness, that we will not only be taught how to not sin, but that when we do sin, that there is an advocate for us in Jesus Christ, the righteous. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. God will come and He will destroy all enemies. We don't have to make a Christian nation because the day is coming when God will make everything a Christian universe. But until that day, we preach and we proclaim and we declare that there is good news of great joy. That God has sent a deliverer who will destroy, but who will also forgive all who trust in him. Nahum tells us the hub of horror for the known world was now the focus of God's wrath. And God stood against them. And it doesn't matter who is on their side because when God stands against you it doesn't matter who is for you and never again shall their messengers speak their oppressive boastful words never again shall their oppressors take another city never again will they be able to exalt another statue reminding themselves of their greatness instead the beautiful feet of the messengers sent from God shall declare peace, prosperity and safety for the Lord's people when the good news of the salvation of God's people is seen it is heard and it is seen in the destruction of their enemies. Nahum has done all mankind of service through this vivid depiction of the outpouring of the wrath of God on the city of Nineveh. But this very concrete physical portrayal has come very close to a description of divine judgment that is actually reserved for the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, just write down Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 through 42. Hear what Matthew writes down that Jesus said. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verses 48 and 49. When it was full... Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. You see, the revelation of God in the Bible always does two things. It reveals who God is, and it separates those who trust in this God from those who do not. Revelation and separation. Friends, let me ask you, where will you be on that day? You will be sorted. You will stand before the judge of the earth. You will give an account for every careless word, for every sinful thought, for every evil deed. Where will you be on that day on that day? When the good news of the salvation of God's people is seen in the destruction of her enemies. A few quick applications as we close. First, our trials do not last forever. This proclamation of good news actually taught the people of Judah that there is no trial that they will face in this life that will actually outlast them. That is good news. The trials were severe. The trials were real. But the trials will not outlast them because the hope for this people is an eternal hope. The peace for this people is an eternal peace. The life for this people is an eternal life. That was true for them and that is true for you. Your trials will not last forever. And there is no trial that you will face in this life that will outlast you ultimately. It might outlast you here, but it will not outlast you. Second, current virtues do not offset old vices. Current virtues do not offset old vices. As we look to the people of Nineveh, again, we are prone to think these are otherwise innocent people that God just, for some reason, destroyed. And it really doesn't matter what virtuous things that they did do. God never says, no one in Assyria ever did anything nice. That no one ever did anything good for someone else. But he does teach us that their current virtues do not offset their old vices, that they have been wicked. And they have supported wickedness. And they have stood for wickedness. And they have committed wickedness. That was true for them and that is true for us. Your current virtues are not offsetting your past sins. The good things that you do are not the way that you get out of jail. You trust in Christ and hope in the forgiveness of sins. Third, Nahum is not saying, this will happen if you don't repent. That was Jonah's mission. Nahum is saying, this will happen. Friends, that is important for us to learn that a day is coming perhaps sooner than you might think when there will be no more opportunity to respond. This will happen. Live differently now. Because we do not know when the Lord will return. And fourth, as we look out and think of this appointed day, how shall we put ourselves and think of ourselves on the day of divine scrutiny that is associated with that day. Where will we stand? And on what are we standing? Let me ask you lastly and afresh. Where will you stand? And on what are you standing? Is it the rock, the Lord Christ? Or is it in your own works, in your own deeds, in your own hope? Friends, the good news of the salvation of God's people the seen in the destruction of her enemies. And on that day, she will be vindicated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. There's a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, and we pray that you would help us. Help us to walk in wisdom as we contemplate the beauty of the gospel of God that comes to forgive wicked, sinful people like us. We thank you, Father, for the words of comfort that a day is coming when our enemies will be destroyed. Father, we pray that we would take heed lest we too fall. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of the one true and living God, the triune God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?